This morning we begin a new series of sermons. I always appreciate Richard giving me an opportunity in the summer to do a, a short series of sermons, and I've chosen the book of Habakkuk. That's probably one of those books you haven't read a whole lot, maybe haven't heard a lot of sermons from. It's tucked away at the very end of the Old Testament. It's called a minor prophet. Now, minor, not because it's unimportant or less important than the others, but simply because it's a short book. There are only three chapters in it. I chose that because uh, I was thinking through the summer of this past year, how relevant this message is to the times in which we live. When Habakkuk wrote this prophecy, it was during a low point in the history of Judah. It was before the Babylonian captivity. In fact, Babylon was just emerging as a power in the world at this time. Things were really difficult in Judah. It seems that there was a lack of justice, increasing immorality, ongoing wickedness in the land, and Habakkuk, being God's prophet, was deeply troubled over what he saw. And he wanted answers from God. He had been praying to God, and he struggled. He didn't understand why God didn't answer his prayers and why God didn't do something about these difficult circumstances. Now, to get into the book, the very first thing we've got to see is the underlying theme. All of our hymns today have come around that theme of the sovereignty of God. And what you see almost in every passage as we go through this book, you're going to see the sovereignty of God at work, that God is actively involved in human history. To me, one of the most comforting doctrines of all Scripture is the fact that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's the king. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He's the sustainer. He sits upon his glorious throne. He has a great purpose and plan that he is actively bringing about that leads to the culmination when Jesus Christ comes back again and there's new heavens and new earth. And all of history is being directed that way. He's actively involved in human history at every level, and he's actively involved in our lives as well. In fact, there's great implications for us when we consider the sovereignty of God, because it basically means that we can trust him no matter what, in good times and in hard times. In times that seem overwhelming, that we don't understand, we don't like, we wish were different. And yet when we come to understand his sovereignty... We know that we can trust him. In fact, Habakkuk is going to be taught a very fundamental principle here. And you'll read it in chapter 2, that the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk is going to get a faith lesson here. He's going to learn how it is to trust in the sovereignty of God. And let me just say today, whatever we're going through, difficult circumstances, the great peace is that we have a God who's in charge. A God who's in control and a God that we can trust. And so this morning we open our Bibles to Habakkuk, the first chapter, and I'll be reading the first 11 verses. And I remind you that this is the very word of the living God. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. A crowd to you violence, and you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? 
Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And then God gives his answer. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at the fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. And when they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. This is the word of God. Would you join me as we pray? And this morning, Lord, as we tackle some very difficult subjects, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to not only hear your word, but to bring it to bear in our hearts. I thank you for the scripture that brings us your truth. And so, Lord, may we be quick to listen. As we hear you speak to us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, this is a, let me just say up front, there are some difficult things in the book of Habakkuk that we're going to be dealing with over the next few weeks. And you could pick up a little bit here. You could see how Habakkuk starts out with a prayer of lament. And he goes like this. He says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you violence and you do not save. Habakkuk's clearly in deep distress. He's been crying out to God for help. And it seems that God didn't answer him. You know, I've been through some times of deep distress in my own life. And in some of those times, it seems that God was strangely silent. And that was certainly the case with Habakkuk. He didn't understand. He had been pleading with God. Nothing seems to be happening. He was witnessing the society in that day and time literally crumble into moral madness. The very fabric, moral fabric of the society at that time was disintegrating. And he looked at it and it seems like people had forsaken the Lord. They no longer were going after the Lord. They were only going after their own selves and their own pleasure. And at every level in society, sin was rampant. You go to the leadership, and there was moral and spiritual bankruptcy with the leadership. And that plunged the people into a spiral, downward spiral, into spiritual and moral disintegration. There was a culture of immorality and greed and deception and hatred and injustice 
and hypocrisy and oppression. Not a very pretty picture, is it? In fact, look at what Habakkuk said. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Can you can you get the picture here? Violence. Injustice. Wrongdoing. Strife. Conflict. Oppression. So much so that God's law was viewed as nothing. It was void. And justice was being denied. And what you pick up in Habakkuk is this. If you could really get to this man's heart. Remember, he's God's prophet. He's God's man. And as he's looking at that society at that time, and he's seeing all of these terrible things in that society, his heart is broken. He's looking at that and he wants God to be honored. He wants God's people to honor God's word. And he's seeing just the opposite. Everything seems to be in chaos. And it's as though Habakkuk is witnessing all of this and he's intervening. He's calling out to the Lord, Lord, do something. Now, let me stop right here, because a couple of times when we go through this study, I'm going to suggest that we really look at our own society and start praying. Do we have that same kind of heart that Habakkuk had? Does it grieve us when we see our society and the way it's disintegrating into moral bankruptcy? What are we doing? Are we calling on God? Are we interceding? Habakkuk is there pleading with God. And he's saying, Lord, where are you? And why aren't you doing something? Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt that way in your own life sometimes? God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? It almost seems that God was far away and uninterested. But I'll tell you this. The rest of the book of Habakkuk will tell you that's not the case at all. In fact, it's going to show you that God is actively involved and God is interested. And just as he was in that day and time, so he is in our day and time as well. Terrible situation. So Habakkuk lifts it up. So God then gives his answer. Well, how would you like to get this answer? Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Interesting, God starts with three imperatives. Look, watch, be utterly amazed. He's saying, Habakkuk, don't stick your head in the sand here. Look at it. Yes, things are bad. But also look at it and remember who I am. I'm God. I am good. I may seem silent to you right now, but I'm very much at work. Look, watch, contemplate this. Think on these things. Remember who I am and be utterly amazed because I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Now, remember what Habakkuk had been doing. 
He was questioning whether God was working because of the injustice and the immorality and the violence in the land. And now God answers with a resounding, yes, I am at work. And I'll tell you, in our day, just as much as it was in Habakkuk's day, God is at work. I think we could all get very frustrated. You know, those of us who who love Christ and really want to see him honored. And we see such troublesome times that we live in. But I'm going to tell you something. God is still at work. He is still the sovereign Lord who is in control and he is at work. So what is it, this unthinkable thing that God was going to do? Well, here it is. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. How would you like that answer? We're going to deal with that next week because I'm going to tell you something. Habakkuk didn't like it. And he's going to start reasoning with God. He's going to start doing some theology with God. We'll see that next week. Isn't it interesting how God sometimes uses unusual instruments to bring about his purposes? And he said, in this case, I'm going to use the Babylonians. You heard me read about them. I mean, they were terrible people. They were people who were hostile, impetuous, haughty, hasty. They seized lands that they had no right to. They were a law unto themselves. They were ruthless people, violent people. And they're going to come and execute judgment on Judah. Now, let me fast forward a minute because I want to go ahead and solve this one, get it out of the way. We'll come back to it in a couple of weeks. Here's what God is saying. The people in Judah had forsaken God. They had turned away from him. And they had given themselves over to all those things we just read about. And God says, I'm going to judge. And I'm going to use these Babylonians as my instrument to judge the people of Judah. But let me also tell you, fast forward, he comes back to Habakkuk because Habakkuk is really troubled by this. Habakkuk is going to ask next week, God, how could you let those people? They got to be worse than we are. How'd you let them come do this? And God's going to give him the answer. Don't worry about it, Habakkuk. My justice will come upon those Babylonians as well. They will be judged. They will be judged. Now, this morning, what I want to pull this down to, two very important attributes of God that we find in this passage. The first one is the justice of God. And by the way, this is not a very popular subject in this day and time. Talk about the justice of God. But we're going to talk about the justice of God because that's what all of this is really about. It's about the justice of God. And then we're going to talk about the second of those characteristics, which is the mercy of God. And let me say up front, you can never appreciate how good the good news of the gospel is until you understand the justice of God. You can't appreciate it. So we're going to start with justice. The very concept of justice is rooted in the character of God. There's an entry verse, interesting verse in Romans chapter 11, where Paul writes, Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. 
the kindness and the severity. When we talk about his judgment, it is a severe judgment. It's his severity. God is a just God. And isn't it comforting to know that wickedness and injustice will not go unpunished? I mean, we live in a day when people literally get by with murder. They're terrible crimes all the time. And people seem to get around it. But let me remind you that there is a final day of judgment for sin must be paid for. Jesus Christ is coming back not to save, but he comes back to judge. And one of the most fundamental things we need to understand is that God, out of his justice, will not leave the guilty unpunished. Here it is, Exodus 34. He will in no way leave the guilty unpunished. Because you see, sin, Richard does a wonderful job of talking about sin. I mean, that sounds kind of funny. He did a wonderful job talking about sin. But how he describes it is deceitful and deceptive. And what it does, how it destroys. You see, sin elicits the displeasure and wrath of God. It's interesting that if you go through a concordance, you're going to find more verses that deal with God's wrath, fury, anger, and displeasure than you find of verses that deal with his love and tenderness. Isn't that interesting? And it's no wonder that, that Paul wrote in Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We have to take seriously the fact that God, because he's a just God, must punish sin. Now, I've said this sometimes before, and people sort of scratch their head and look at me funny. There's some things God can't do. God can never act inconsistent with his nature, or he wouldn't be God. And because he is a just God, sin has to be punished. Just the way it goes. And his justice is perfect in every way. Now, I would hate to leave it at this. <laughs> you know, here's the justice of God. But aren't you thankful that he's not only a just God, but he's also a merciful God? The very verses just before that verse that says he will in no way leave the guilty unpunished says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's our God. The severity, yes, justice. But the kindness that's seen in his mercy. And this sovereign God makes this statement. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God has the divine right to have mercy on whom he wants to give mercy to. What does mercy mean? Mercy means that we don't get what we deserve. You remember grace? Grace means we get what we don't deserve. Mercy has a little nuance to it. We don't get what we deserve. What do we deserve? God's displeasure. That's what we deserve because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But let me remind you of what it cost God to grant us mercy. It cost him. You see, before God could give mercy, 
His justice had to be satisfied. Does that make sense? Before God could grant mercy, his justice still has to be satisfied. So how was his how was his justice satisfied? Well, here's the good news of the gospel. God's justice was satisfied by the death of his son on the cross. Do you remember what we're told about Jesus? Here he was, the absolute sinless son of God. And what does he do? He comes to this earth and for our sake, he, God, the father, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it cost God his son to grant us mercy. We're told in Galatians chapter three, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Imagine this. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, what did that mean? A curse meant separation. A curse meant loss of favor. It means rejection. Unlike blessing, that means acceptance, favor. Christ became a curse, which explains his words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At that point on the cross, Jesus Christ took our sins and he bore the very wrath of God. God's justice was satisfied and he grants mercy to us on the basis of what Jesus had done for us. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ took the very wrath of God. And let me tell you this, it's precisely in the context of this discussion about the justice of God that Habakkuk learned this very important point. The righteous will live by his faith. Now, we're going to unpack this next week. But here's what we go. We know the gospel. And the gospel says, as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. And the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to us, is given to us. That's what happens at our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, what do we have? We have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, here's what I'm saying this morning. God has lavished his mercy upon us. Never forget what it cost him to do so. Never take the cross for granted. Never underestimate the suffering and pain that Jesus Christ went through on our behalf. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, wrote these words. Between us sinners and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of the Lord Jesus. If we are Christ through faith, then we are justified through his cross. And the wrath will never touch us, neither here nor hereafter. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Our final hymn this morning reflects how vast the mercy of God really is. How much he loves us. 
It goes like this. O Christ, our hope, our heart's desire, redemption's only spring, creator of the world art thou, its savior and its king. And here it is. Look at it. How vast, how vast the mercy and the love which laid our sins on thee and led thee to a cruel death to set thy people free. Beloved, the mercy of God has been lavished upon us because the justice of God has been satisfied in our Savior. That is our hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, how could we ever thank you for what you have done for us in bearing our sins and suffering the very wrath of God? You made it possible for us to be the recipients of your Father's mercy and of his love. And so we pray even in these days in which we live that we who are believers would have a great heart to see you glorified and honored. Even though as we look at this culture, there's so many negative, destructive things that are going on. And yet we know that you're in charge, you're in control. And God, you're going to use us. You have called us to be your people, your witnesses in this day in which we live. And we call upon you, we call upon you to intervene, God. And to bring peace and to bring a fresh movement of your spirit across this country to bring healing and hope. For we make this prayer in your precious name. Amen.